0: We are looking at the promises of God, and already, we've only been doing this a few weeks already, a few patterns have emerged. Firstly, the promises of God frequently come at the lowest points in people's lives. In the Bible, promises often appear when people are suffering, and that's when God speaks. And nobody wants a low point. You don't go looking for them But a low point can be an incredible moment in the life of a church. A low point is often where faith grows and dependence on God deepens. And there's something about a disaster, I think, like the one that we're in, that awakens the soul of some believers. And yet, it kills it off in others. There's no real option. For cultural Christianity when there's no culture. When you're locked in a house, you're simply left with a choice in or out. There's no mushy middle anymore, as one of my friends says. So our experience frequently matches the experience of the characters in Scripture and indeed the pattern of Scripture. And thus it is highly likely that when we return, we will return to a very different church, one that has been both pruned and yet renewed at the same time. Who are you? Which will you be? Another pattern. For those that do grow in their faith, or even come to faith, because that is what a crisis can do, you need to know that God's timing is unlikely to be the same as yours. Often these promises that we see in Scripture are apparently breached by God. But in fact, what these disasters do, these apparent breaches of promise do, is they reveal to us that we have been trusting in the wrong promises all along and the wrong promise makers So in his book, Reappearing Church, a bloke called Mark Sayers writes, The promises of our culture are falling flat. We have an endless opportunity to pursue pleasure, yet so many of us are miserable and anxious. Loneliness is growing. Silicon Valley's promises that a world connected by social media will be a better, more tolerant world now look ridiculous. And he wrote wrote this before what we're seeing right now. The assurances that a globalized world will be a fairer, more peaceful and prosperous place seem shaky. These failed promises are fueling a growing sense of dissatisfaction and a desire to see things change. Our earthly promise makers have failed. Here's another pattern. What if you failed? What if you're the failure? What if it's your fault? What if you cannot stand to talk about patterns because all the patterns in your life have been so awful and they've been patterns of failure? If that is you and you have a profound awareness of your sin this morning, note God's promises frequently come to those who do not deserve them. Eve destroys creation. Have you done that? Abraham lies That's the clean PG-13 version. Get the book. Moses murders. And yet God uses these people. And here's another pattern. God approaches them. Do you see how in all of these accounts, it's God who approaches them first? So thus, if you're feeling this morning like you don't really deserve a promise and therefore you can't expect to get one, you are half correct, You do not deserve a promise, but you can expect to get one because God is a God of grace. There's a pattern for you. In fact, there is the supreme pattern of Scripture. If we're going to talk about patterns, let's talk about this one. God is a God of grace. Grace is the ultimate pattern. That is the overarching pattern of Scripture, grace. God makes hundreds of promises in Scripture, but they're all about one thing like the threads of a Tarantino movie. It just makes sense at the end. All these disparate things are woven together, and suddenly at the end you go, oh, I get it now. And we've seen the end. Second Corinthians one twenty says very clearly, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So let's turn together to 2 Samuel. There's loads of promises. You can count them if you like. If you do count them, you can publish that because that's basically scholarship these days. Count the promises of God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we go through. Verse 2. David, established by God as king, reflects, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. I have a house, God has a tent, that is not right. God needs a house worthy of who he is better than my house, he says. And then in verse 4, God responds to David through the prophet Nathan. And before we look at anything that God really says, look first at how he says it. Verse 4, the word of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Now, as we've seen several times in this series, and pretty much every single time it occurs in Scripture, Lord, L-O-R-D in capital letters, is the covenant name of God. Lord functions as a shorthand reminder of all the promises of God that he has made and all of the promises of God that he will yet fulfill and even make in the future at this point in Scripture. And it reminds us that God faithfully keeps his word and he always will. Lord is like a summary of our entire faith in one little word. And so David is seeking to honour God, but God is seeking to remind David of how this works. He does that with the word Lord. And in verse 9, God begins to respond in a way that is wholly consistent with his name. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. There's been presence, there has been protection, a pattern of behavior that has built up trust. And I will, there's the promissory language again, make for you a great name. David wants to bless God. God will bless David. It's a pattern. In verse 10, God continues with these promises. Are you counting? And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. The image of being placed and planted is a beautiful image for us. It reminds me of Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, Eloade. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Not. At all dissimilar from the psalm that Ben was given by the Holy Spirit before this service. I love the way God does this. You know, I'm praying, I'm thinking a thing, I'm going a direction, and God is speaking to Robert and speaking to Ben and speaking to other people in the room, saying, hey, look at this. Let me just amplify this point for you. This, it, it's prophetic. That's what it's called. And here's Psalm 1. God says its leaf does not wither. Weather withers. That's what it does. Uh, Life wears you down. The tree in Psalm 1, it's like a metaphor, uh, an image uh, of us. And, uh, you know, it's just an illustration of what it's like to go through life. Life gets you down. It wears you down. If you're growing a lawn right now, uh, you will see it getting patchy probably and, and needing some treatment. If you're growing hair right now and you've not been to the barbers, you probably noticed something similar going on. They might well be doing the same thing. I think I'm getting mange. It's all right. God still loves me. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to live in this world forever. It just reminds me that the clock is ticking. And uh, that's what it does. But this vision of a tree by a river is, is, is special. Because the the tree planted by the river takes its water from the river. An endless supply of nourishment feeds this tree. It means no matter what kind of droughts or storms come along, whatever weather withers, it it won't wither the tree because it is is fed by something constant and consistent and something cool and refreshing and and, and good and predictable and never-ending. This image is like some of us. It explains why some of us in this pandemic are thriving. That is because some of us were not planted in this world and some of us were not fed by this world either, never have been. Some of us did not trust the promises of this world, neither the promise makers of this world. We trusted God and so for us, nothing fundamental has changed and never will. The planting of Israel goes together with the nourishment of Israel. That which God establishes, he feeds. That which he plants, he nourishes, and he protects as well. So God continues, they shall be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more. No critters are going to come and dig up your lawn. It's another promise, too, in fact. I can't count them all. Maybe you can prestige place planting Presence, peace, protection, and nourishment. That last one is a stretch. But uh, London Evangelicals like alliteration, and I was forced to come up with another P. P, nourishment. It's a silent P. It's a stretch, isn't it? But, you know, whatever. Verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you. I love this. It's like, here's a bunch of promises, and you're trying to count them all and cram them into things beginning with P. And God's like, and here's some more. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that's sort of getting your attention, da, 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 that the Lord will make you a house. David goes, I'll build you a house. And God goes, no, I'll build you a house. It's just completely flipped the entire conversation at this point. In fact, if you really think about it, flipped the religion at this point. David's brain is doing a very normal human thing. He is doing the standard religious thinking of all human beings. Every single religion, from the crummiest bit of paganism through to the great religions of the world, think exactly the same way. The people serve the God, or the gods, or the power, or the planet, or the force, whatever. They disagree on that tiny little point, that little minor detail, but they do agree that if we do enough for that thing, that thing will look after us. And David is thinking like that. So in their commentary on 2 Samuel, Thomas and Greer say this, the thinking here in David's mind is this. One, the king builds the temple for the God. Two, the temple makes the God famous. Three, the God thanks the king and blesses him in some way. And here, God says, no, that is not how I operate. I will make the house, says God. This is worth unpacking a little bit more because this is very strange. This is unique, in fact, where God approaches the king and says, I will make the house. David Wanted to build a house. David meant a building, a physical place where God could physically dwell in their midst, a building appropriate enough for the presence and the power of God. But God takes this word house and just goes to town with it, just expands this word house in numerous different ways. House, meaning succession, ruling dynasty, or dynasty, I'm sorry, Dad. Uh, or thing from Hogwarts, whatever, Uh, house meaning, you know, name, succession plan, like at the House of Windsor, royal dynasty. When your days are fulfilled, he says, and you lie down with your fathers, I will, promise, raise up your offspring, singular, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will, promise, establish his kingdom. Two more promises to David, a son and a kingdom. Verse 13, and he shall build a house for my name. Back to the literal. Your house, your name, will build a house, a building for me. He's just playing with these two images at this point. Solomon, David's son, does build the temple. David does not. But I want you to remember that often these promises and these prophecies, uh, telescope, we've looked at this before, they they occur in, in both an immediate sense an intermediate sense and an ultimate one one promise or prophecy can be about more than one event in time at once and it can be fulfilled over and over again each prophetic fulfillment not only fulfilling the previous one but amplifying it and preparing you for the next until it gets to the very end where god is going and ties it all together there is an ultimate fulfillment of all of these promises that ties them all together It only makes sense at the end. It's like a Tarantino movie. You've got to wait to the end for it all to make sense. And so God starts to lay on now more and more layers of this prophetic promise. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look at that word forever. It gets your attention. Solomon is not going to live forever, but his kingdom is. So now... An eternal kingdom comes into view. We've sort of fast-forwarded, if you like, to the end of the the movie, and we're looking at the eternal. That's what God's talking about. And if you're going to have an eternal kingdom, that will require an eternal king. And if he's going to remain present there, you will need an eternal temple. And you might as well throw in an eternal priest as well to complete the picture. And then in verse 14, continuing to roll with these promises... God says this, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. An eternal son comes into view. This is what certain scholars in some circles have started to call an Avril Levine verse. Could it be any more obvious? Not really, no. It couldn't really be any more obvious at all. Hebrews chapter 1 which was written, I note, without the distinct advantage of the seminal 2002 MTV-nominated punk rock anthem of that year, Skater Boy, S-K-8-E-R, Boy, B-O-I. It says, in case there's any lack of clarity, could it be any more obvious, this is Jesus, this eternal temple, priest, king, kingdom, building, presence, power, nourishment, refreshment, all of this stuff, offspring, singular, is Jesus. David is being told about Jesus. It is the same promise that was given to Eve and and to Abraham, just amplified, distilled, focused, all in one. And it's refined here and repeated to David. You can't put God permanently in a house, even if it was a really good house It wouldn't last forever. It would never be good enough. It would never last enough. And so God promises here something more permanent in which to dwell, through whom to dwell. It is Jesus, the perfect presence, the perfect priest, the perfect king, the perfect temple, the perfect son. Clearly, it's Jesus. Clearly, it all makes sense. This is literally the easiest passage of scripture we will ever read then it goes weird and messes with your head. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And and now it doesn't really make sense because Jesus never committed iniquity. Iniquity means crookedness, you know, idiomatic of sin. Jesus never did anything wrong. And uh, it would be unthinkable to David if he was tracking with this idea, that we, the sinners, would punish the Son. That would not make any sense at all. That we, the sinners, the sinful men, could at our hands whip this offspring, the Son of God, makes no sense at all. That would be like destroying the temple. It would be like murdering the king. It would be like sacrificing the priest or crucifying the Son of God. They've not seen the end of the movie doesn't make any sense at all. But Isaiah, Isaiah, explains how this works. He explains to them how this works. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds or stripes we are healed. It's an exchange that takes place. This is the answer to the conundrum. This is the final scene. It's not his sin. It's our sin. But he takes it on as his. He appropriates it. Christ bears our sin. And because he bears our sin, he bears our punishment as well. It's in fact at our hands that he dies. Such is this great exchange that takes place on the cross. And then God says that's not actually the end. It's the penultimate scene, but it's not the end. And in verse 15, God continues. Look at all of that sin heaped upon the head of Jesus Christ. Everything you've done, every low point that you've been in, heaped upon the head of Jesus Christ for you. And God says this. But my steadfast love, the, the, the covenant love, chesed, the, 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 the unfailing love of God, will not depart from him. Promissory love will not leave Jesus. If you're in Jesus, then you receive that promise. If you're in Christ Jesus, the love of God will not leave you, no matter what is going on, no matter what you've done. It can't because God has sworn by himself. And so we're just left with the exact same questions that face David. David just goes, I'll build you a house and all of this stuff happens. We are left with the exact same question. How do we respond? Let me just tell you in under one minute how David responded. He worshipped, chapter 7. Then he advanced the kingdom in chapter 8. Then he sinned horribly in chapter 11. Then he repented fully in chapter 12. Then he was restored and he forgave his enemies in chapter 19. And he started to bring about justice in chapter 21. Then he worshipped again in chapter 22. And then he sinned again. And then he repented again in chapter 24. Does any of that sound like the pattern of your life? I wonder which of those chapters you're in right now. But it could be any of them. The point is this, whether you're at a a high point in your walk with Jesus or at the absolute lowest point, and whatever calamities are coming your way, whatever droughts and storms, God is faithful to you. God is calling you into his house, into Jesus Christ, to make a dwelling in your hearts. A coronavirus cannot keep you outside of the house of God if you understand what the house of God really is. It's not a place, it is a person, and he will establish you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our country is wounded and in turmoil. It is divided, and it is confused, and it has trusted in the wrong promises over and over again, and continues to do so. So, Father God, would we repent? Would we seek justice? Would we forgive? Would we worship again? And Father, we ask you to come and make your home in our hearts, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.